Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. During our community time, you saw a little video commercial for an actor named Jason Hildebrand. Jason is a very fine Christian actor, professional Christian actor, who's been uh, dramatizing scripture for a long time, about 15 years. And God has kind of dropped him in our lap uh, for November 9th. And the reason I'm so excited about this is that if you've been into the With book at all, and by the way, Amazon has promised, promised me that books will arrive on Wednesday. We'll see. But anyway, you know that um, some of the wrong postures of, God, uh, of our thinking about God, we tend to live life for God and from God. And um, the, the story of the prodigal son portrays this very dramatically. And I was in planning on preaching on the prodigal son on November 9. And lo and behold, God drops this Christian actor in our laps who acts out the story of the prodigal son in three... Um, 10 minute segments doing each of the main characters younger son, older son, and father. And it so dramatically portrays the truth of the scripture. It's the best possible sermon you could have. So I'm giving you this little encouragement and a heads up, an explanation of why we're inviting Jason to come because it's such a powerful way of communicating. It is worthwhile, first of all, absolutely changing your schedule so you can make sure you're here that morning. And invite friends, neighbors, enemies. If you have any enemies, invite them. Um, it'd be really good. And maybe after the service, they won't be your enemy anymore. Uh, it, it, it's a very powerful opportunity. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. So thank you for bearing with me as I give that little uh, commercial. Tamara, can we go to the PowerPoint just for a minute? Because that's where I wanted to start this morning. And Tamara, by the way, is stepping in in an emergency role, so I'm very grateful that you're here. Okay, this morning we're going to be talking about life over and uh, under and over God. We'll have a review of those postures in a minute. But first, let me ask you, what is the most important thing about a person? Their thoughts about God. Someone who was here last week, the keener in the front row, remembers the answer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There are other important things about us, like how we relate to each other, and the personal hygiene answer, I'll never forget that one, <laughs> from a medical student of all people. But 
Truly, I believe that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because that is a game changer. That changes everything, our whole perspective on life. Pastor Justina this morning asked me, how are you? And she said, you don't have to lie to me. And I thought, okay, that's an open door. And I, and I realized I've had a lousy week, absolutely horrible week in, in different ways. But I think at the core of my lousy week is that I struggle with this whole with thing. I still don't exactly get it. I understand it theoretically, but it's hard to practice it because I come at life from all, come at my relationship with God from all kinds of directions, most of them not very healthy. God is trying to teach me how to live with Him. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at this morning. But I know that God is with us and He wants to lead us into the truth and reveal Himself to us. Now, Tamara, if I could ask for your patience, if you wouldn't mind showing that video for us. This brief clip just reviews the different postures we have, different attitudes we have before God. And this morning, we'll be specifically studying two of them. Okay. A few years ago, a sociologist studied the religious lives of teenagers. What he concluded is that most of them had a view of God as either a divine butler or a cosmic therapist. In other words, they weren't particularly interested in God himself, only what he could do for them. This really shouldn't surprise us because most religious traditions teach us to use God to achieve some other desire. For example, in many traditions we're taught that we should live under God. By obeying commands, we're told God will bless us and be on our side. The idea is to use God to control one's life and world. Life over God says following the right principles is how to guarantee a good life. In this case, we use God as the source for practical help and advice. Life from God rightly teaches that He is our provider, but that's all it sees Him as. This posture makes Him into a divine vending machine to give us what we desire. Life for God makes everything about God's mission in the world. It uses God to give us a sense of meaning and purpose. In each of these postures, God is used to achieve some other desire. He is a means to an end. He provides us with a sense of control or blessings or the principles by which we govern our lives or a sense of meaning and purpose and direction. And there's a truth to each of those postures. God does supply us with those things. But in the end, if we really want to experience life with God, which is the central calling of Jesus Christ, then we need to see that God is not merely the means by which we achieve our treasure. In the Christian faith, God is our treasure. The reason why a great many people in the church today are failing to experience the freedom and wonder of the Christian life is because they've never been taught to actually desire and want God. They don't treasure Him. Instead, they've been taught to merely use Him to achieve some lesser desire. So that's a quick summary of our different postures before God. This morning, what we're going to be talking about is life under God and life over God. First of all, let's start with life under God. Let me give you an example. This is Steve Johnson. He was a wide receiver uh, for the Buffalo Bills. This was back in 2010. 
Steve's team was uh, playing the heavily favored Pittsburgh Steelers. And Steve had a perfectly thrown touchdown pass in his hands, and he drops it in the end zone, and his team loses. So after the game, what does Steve tweet? He tweets this. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? I'll never forget this, ever. That's a very mature theological response to misfortune. (laughs) Whose fault was it that Steve dropped the football? Obviously God. And what's Steve's attitude? You see, this is a classic example, an extreme example of life under God. I did all these things for you. I followed all the rules. I praise you 24-7. And you allow this to happen to me? Come on. The life under God posture is all about us trying to control God by being outwardly compliant. Jesus ran into people like this all the time, especially the religious ruling elite in his day. Here's a story of Levi, also known as Matthew, who's just been called to follow Jesus. He leaves his shady profession as a corrupt tax collector slash mafioso, and he starts to follow Jesus. And as a start off as his career as a disciple, Matthew throws a huge party for all his uh, somewhat shady, sketchy associates. Later, Levi, Matthew, held a banquet in his home with Jesus as a guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. Let's be very clear about this. The religious Pharisees were just as sick or worse off than the people Jesus was eating with, but they didn't realize their need for God. But the Pharisees were experts at keeping rules and maintaining external standards because this is how they thought they could please God. And it's true God gave us the Ten Commandments. They are not the Ten Suggestions or Ten Recommendations or Ten Principles to have a successful life. They are commandments. And God says, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you break them, there's a consequence. Just like any good parent teaches their children from an early age, there is a consequence. And that's why we often have negative connotations to this word consequence. We say to our little children, Do you want a consequence? No. (laughs) We don't realize that consequences can be good. But uh, I digress. At any rate, there are laws, God's laws in life. But our attitude towards keeping them is absolutely crucial. Why do we keep God's law? To control him? To get him to like us? To earn his approval? Or do we keep God's law because we acknowledge that he's a loving father who provides for us and looks out for us. I'll give you an, a recent example from, from how I grew up. I grew up in a fairly conservative Christian home. 
And we couldn't do a lot of things on Sundays that other people, other kids could do. And I chafed at this. I wasn't exactly sure why I was allowed to skate on our pond, on our farm on a Sunday, but I couldn't go to the public arena for public skating. I wasn't quite sure where that connection was. Maybe because I had to pay to skate? I don't know. I'm not quite sure where that was. Um, later on, when I became a youth pastor, Luann and I rented a cottage at a well-known Christian conference center in the Muskoka area of, uh, vacation area of Ontario. And this well-known Christian conference area had rules. On Sunday, you weren't supposed to go in the lake. Absolutely beautiful lake. Except for personal hygiene reasons. So on Sunday, I took a bath all day <laughs> in the lake. I was so clean. I wish that lake would clean me on the inside, but I was so clean on the outside. And we played with our kids, and it was awesome. And there were people literally in three-piece suits coming down to the edge of the beach and looking longingly at the lake. And they wanted to say, personal hygiene reasons, come on in. You know, you look, they look cleaner than I did. And they just, but I remember that look of longing and thinking, this doesn't make sense. Because the Bible says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, you could argue you, we've gone way too far with what we do on Sundays now. And Sunday's just like a regular day, any other day, and we've lost the whole intent of the Sabbath. And I would agree with that. But that's another sermon. And just giving you an illustration of how rule-keeping can sometimes keep us away from God. We can feel very pious. I don't know what these people in the three-piece suits thought of me having a bath, a day-long bath at the beach and the lake. I don't know if they prayed for me or prayed against me or were just jealous. I don't know. And to be honest, I didn't lose any sleep over it. I was just rejoicing in God's creation that day. There was <laughs> the, the pastor I apprenticed under was an interesting character. And his dad, he was a pastor's kid. So back in the 1930s, he used to talk about swimming on Sundays. His father would wade into the river, but he wouldn't lift his feet because that would be swimming. But he would go in and cool off. So this personal hygiene thing has got quite a history. <laughs> See? It, it, it makes, it's very logical, perfectly logical. I will go in and cool off for personal hygiene reasons, but I won't lift my feet, and I, I'll try not to enjoy it either, you know, because that, that wouldn't be good either, right? Do you see how life under God, this, this idea of rule-keeping comes in and we think by keeping the rules, we can, we may not admit it, but we subtly think, okay, well, God will bless us. We will make good things happen if I keep the rules. Then God has to bless me. And you get extreme examples like um, butterfingered football players who blame God for dropped touchdown passes or other people like that. Those are extreme examples. But this is the danger of allowing external externals to trump the internals. And that's very dangerous. So life under God is all about outward compliance trumps an inner reality. If I, if I feel like I match standards and I perform and I look good, 
that will earn brownie points with God. And that trumps whatever's on the inside. It's really all about fear and control. If I control God, if I, know just, if, I just know, if I just knew what the rules were, then I know that I would be doing the right thing. It's not about having a relationship with God. It's about having a relationship with the rule book. So the Bible is regarded as a rule book. Now the Bible's got commands for us. They're not suggestions, they're commands. But how do we perceive God's commands? They're not restrictive or brutal. They don't drain from life. They're designed to bless us and give us life. But it's all in our attitude towards the lawgiver, right? What kind of a relationship do we have with the lawgiver? If you have no relationship with the lawgiver, then you just keep the rules and you make sure everybody else keeps the rules too. Because if I've got to be miserable, you're going to be miserable too, right? That's our attitude. Personal hygiene's only on Sunday. Remember that. But if you perceive and know the lawgiver and crave a relationship with him and want to read anything at all, any scrap of anything he's written and left for us, then you gladly engage and say, yeah, out of love, I'll follow the commandments. Totally different. On the outside, people will look the same, but on the inside, it's tremendous difference. Let's talk about life over God for a moment. Life over God is this idea that the Bible, and again, this is part of the truth. This is what makes these, these lies so subtle. The Bible contains principles for life, guidance, all right? And we look at the Bible as a guidebook. And I've been guilty of preaching this at times. It's a, I wouldn't call it a handbook to happiness at all, but it, it's like a handbook for life. It, it's the instruction manual for life. It's the creator's guidebook. And if you want to have a good relationship or a successful life, you follow the principles in the Bible. But the problem with that is that you soon reduce the Bible and a relationship with God to just a series of principles. We have very little relationship with the actual person behind the principles. You just follow the principles or techniques. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Remember, um, Moses is leading a uh, a rabble through the desert, trying to get from Egypt to Palestine, which should have taken just a few weeks, really. I could walk it in a few weeks. It took them 40 years because they literally kept going in circles and cycling and cycling in unhealthy ways in rebellion. It was a biblical gong show. But they got there eventually. But in the desert, what are you primarily short of? What's the issue? Water. Yeah. Well, they came to a situation where they didn't have water and God miraculously supplied water for them and Moses used this staff that God had provided for him. It's an amazing, amazing thing. The staff could do powerful things. God manifested his power through this staff several different times in several different dramatic ways. So Moses grew dependent on the technique on the staff. Now listen as I read this story. 
In the first month, the entire company of the people of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin. The people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam died there, and she was buried. There was no water for the community. So they ganged up on Moses and Aaron. This happened fairly frequently. They attacked Moses. We wish we died when the rest of our brothers die before God. They forgot that they were killed in a plague for rebellion. Why did you haul this congregation of God out here into this wilderness to die, people and cattle alike? And why did you take us out of Egypt in the first place, dragging us into this miserable country? No grain, no figs, no grapevines, no pomegranates, and now not even any water. Now what these fools had forgotten is that there were slaves in Egypt under a brutal domination by the Egyptians. And when they first got out, they were so glad and happy to be free, and now they're grumbling, as usual. And if you think these people are bad, think about the average Canadian congregation. We're not very much different from these folks. We've been set free from sin, and then we start grumbling. We're not happy about something, right? I won't go into details, because that'll get too close for comfort. Moses and Aaron walked from the assembled congregation to the tent of meeting. This is where they would meet with God. They threw themselves face down on the ground, and they saw the glory of God. They were with God. They communicated with God. He was communicating directly with them. What an amazing experience. And what, what a revelation of God under that pressure. You know, there's a lynch mob outside basically wanting to hang you and rebel totally against your leadership. And they, they do the smart thing. They go and seek God. And God reveals himself to them. God spoke to Moses. Take the staff. Okay? Assemble the community, you and your brother Aaron. Speak to that rock that's right in front, in front of them and it will give water. You will bring water out of the rock for them. Congregation and cattle will both drink. So what are the instructions? What's Moses supposed to do? Speak to the rock. Okay? That's important detail. Moses took the staff away from God's presence as commanded. He and Aaron rounded up the whole congregation in front of the rock. Moses spoke. And I could just imagine how angry he was. Listen, rebels, do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? With that, Moses raised his arm and slammed his staff against the rock. Once, twice, water poured out congregation and cattle drank. Wow. A miracle. That's another miracle. Amazing. God said to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't trust me, didn't treat me with holy reverence in front of the people of Israel, you two aren't going to lead this company into the land that I'm giving them. Oh, burn, as our kids would say. Oh, that hurts. Was Moses effective? Well, was Moses effective? Yeah, it worked. It's a miracle. Man, that's amazing. He just whacked the, the, the rock twice with this amazing staff he had, and water comes out of the rock. Wow, amazing. And what happens? Was Moses ultimately successful? Eh. No, he wasn't. Why? He didn't listen to God. He relied on a technique. It's worked before. I'm really under pressure. There's something amazing about this staff. 
It, it dazzled Pharaoh. It, when I plunged it into the Red Sea, the water parted. There's something about this. He trusted in a staff and a technique and not in the living God himself. Now, we might think we're being a little hard on Moses. I mean, he was really under pressure. He was facing a veritable lynch mob. He must have feared for his life, and he was so frustrated when he yelled back at the crowd and called them a bunch of rebels. And I think, even though the Bible says he was a very humble, mild-mannered guy, I think he just lost his temper. I totally get that. I feel like breaking things sometimes. I totally get that. I wish I'd had a big... It's a good thing I didn't have a big staff earlier this week because I would have been breaking stuff, probably in my garage. But, you know, I miss having a wood-burning stove because I used to split wood, and that was really therapeutic. Now you're going to all think, Pastor Rick's a psycho. No, No, it's just a good way of releasing energy. Good exercise. Um, So... Moses was upset, and he lost it. But he did not trust God. Moses and Aaron blew it because God gave them clear instructions. They met with God. God met with them in that pressure-filled situation. How reassuring, how comforting. And they blew it. Why? Because they relied on a technique. They relied on some principles instead of the person who gave, gave the principles. It's like... If you have a car that needs repair and you have a really good um, manual to repair the car, do you rely on the manual or the mechanic? What would your choice be? Yeah, you would think the mechanic because you have a relationship with that person, right? God bless honest mechanics. God bless them because I love people like that. You know, it's so important for someone like me. So if you have an honest mechanic, would you trust them or the repair manual? What Moses went to was the repair manual. Oh, let's go to the technique. This worked last time, so let's just do it again. There's no need for us to pray. How often do we do business meetings? Well, what did we do last month? Or what did we do before? What did we do last year? And then you get into the seven last words of the church. Oh, we've never done it that way before. You know, and we just rely on technique and what we've done it before and tradition. Tradition's not a bad thing. Traditionalism will kill you. And here's a little freebie. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. See the difference? Tradition is a good thing. It's good for us to Say the Lord's Prayer together. Even repeat the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's, a, it's a Christian thing. It doesn't belong to one particular denomination. It's a Christian thing. But if we rely on those things all the time without having a personal relationship with God, we're no better than Moses, losing his temper and depending on yeah, a technique instead of a uh, relationship with a person. Life over God says that principles and techniques are more important than a relationship. It's, life over God says, well, we don't need the mechanic because we've got the mechanic's manual, putting more trust in that. And that's really dangerous. Unfortunately, it's very prevalent in the church today. 
I get my email inbox is filled with seven ways to do this and five things you should think about and six things about this and it kind of overwhelms me and some of this stuff is helpful but I end up just deleting it because it just it just fills me with techniques and that we can always learn from other people but ultimately what do we trust in do we trust in listening to God and having a relationship with him we can make an idol out of being effective and I can hardly believe I'm saying this but listen very carefully we want to do things that are effective and I try to be effective in what I do but if we make a God out of being effective we stop listening to the Lord of hosts we stop listening to the Creator who made people so we want an effective way of communicating the gospel right we work really hard at that here we pray we agonize we're trying to think how do we communicate communicate the truth in a life-changing way so that God transforms people I have to keep reminding myself Rick you can't fix people you can't even fix yourself but God changes people right so we can make a, an idol out of being effective and relying on a technique rather than the Spirit of God doing his thing bringing people to himself now that doesn't mean we don't practice we don't work hard or whatever but ultimately our faith is in the creator of the universe not our splashy techniques or the dog and pony show that we put on on a Sunday morning or getting everything in the right order or whatever you know those things are helpful but we don't worship those we don't ultimately put our faith in this so we've seen that living under God and with legalism and living over God with trying to control him with techniques are both unhelpful I want to leave us with a little bit of hope today oh by the way I don't know if you've ever heard of this term it's a fascinating term moralistic therapeutic deism you can discuss this over lunch but there was a study back in 2005 and it turned into a book called soul searching the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers these two Christian sociologists interviewed 300 American teenagers and they came up with this term of what what are we actually passing on to the next generation in the church moralistic therapeutic deism um, what moralistic means well just just follow rules therapeutic it's all about making you feel better as a person and deism it means basically there is a God but you don't really have a personal relationship with them we rely on principles here's some of the belief tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism there's a God who exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth okay God wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem God turns into a cosmic fire alarm in case of trouble break glass and talk to God good people go to heaven when they die with their dogs maybe I don't know but this is moralistic therapeutic deism it's got a resemblance to biblical faith but its core is hollow and shallow and this is what a lot of our younger people are buying into it's because of this life over God posture we reduce life the Christian life to just a bunch of principles and good ideas that we follow instead of a relationship with the living God 
What's the answer to moralistic, therapeutic deism and these two wrong postures? What's the answer? Life with God. And let me just give you a little bit of a teaser, okay? I'm trying to create an appetite for change here, but I'm going to give you a little bit of teaser, a little bit of hope. This is one of my favorite uh, translations of the message in uh, the New Testament. It's from Matthew 11. It was read earlier in another version this morning. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion, a life under God? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with, with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. This talks to the over-God technique thing where we want to make things happen. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I hope that creates an an appetite for change in us. Because this is the relationship that God invites us into. I don't know if you're tired and worn out and burned out on religion. A lot of people are. A lot of people have left the institutional church. And on some level, I can understand that. I mean, it saddens me, but on some level, I can understand that. Because if it's all about external performance or just following uh, good advice on life, and there's no supernatural experience of God, why bother? Find something else to do on a Sunday morning. But there's more to life than that. And if we're burned out on religion, Jesus says, hey, get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. And watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is not airy-fairy religious stuff. This is not super spiritualizing. It is gritty and real and absolutely essential to life on planet Earth because God is going to recreate this planet He is adopting a family of his own to change this place for the better. And he's going to do it as he lives with us. We're going to spend eternity with him anyway. So why not enjoy life now? Eternal life starts today. Not when you die. I did a a funeral for Mr. Uh, Clinton Dartnell this week. Clinton died at the age of 94. Wow, that's amazing. And the stories that Elamites have told me and his son, Clinton had a relationship with Jesus. He was with him every day, talking to him, listening to him. That's really impressive. That's one of the things his family remembered about him most. But for Clinton, eternal life didn't start when he stopped breathing. Eternal life for him started when he started that relationship with Jesus. Way before now. Way before 2014. Do you feel God's Spirit tweaking you, calling you, 
Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Have you got an appetite for this stuff? Are you curious? Are you skeptical? Do you think it's not going to work? Do you think it works for other people? I confess I've been there too. I read about the spirit, so-called spiritual giants, and I think, oh, well, it's great for Hudson Taylor or some super missionary person or somebody else. It always seems to be for somebody else. But God says, Rick, you could, you could live life with me if you want to give it a shot and learn how to do it. Walk with me. So if you want to give that a shot, this would be an excellent day to start. Excellent day. Say, Lord, show me what's wrong about these, these postures and my attitudes towards you. And am I living my life under you, being outwardly compliant but inwardly rebellious? Or, or have I reduced the Bible to just a, a book of good advice and I don't even know how to hear your voice? Man, we got to pray. We got to pray and ask God to be real. And we'll see what happens. All right? Jesus, I'm really, uh, personally, I'm really hungry to learn how to do this with stuff. I think there's a spiritual appetite here at Elam, and I think your spirit is drawing people to yourself. So right now, in the name of Jesus, I pray against any spirit of skepticism or fear, any spirit of outward rebellion that's keeping people from a relationship with you, really pursuing you. I pray that you would demolish all the lies that we believe about ourselves and the wrong thinking about you. I pray you would demolish those lies and that you would reveal yourself to people and show us yourself, reveal yourself to us. And as we sing this last song, Father, I pray that you would help us to enter into it and surrender our lives to you in faith so we can learn how to walk with you in life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.